Lord, Your Word says that in Your light we see light. And so I ask this morning that You would lighten our darkness with the power of Your eternal Word. Move on our minds and hearts. And may Your pleasure be experienced as we look into the account of Belshazzar in Daniel. And I pray this, Lord, in Your glorious name. Amen. Uh, I've been going through the book of Daniel. Every time I come up, nothing's changed. Uh, I also have a title for you, if you care. It's, the title of the sermon is, God is Sovereign Over Your Life. So what awaits God belittling people? And the fact of the matter is, we've all been God belittling people at one time or another, as non-believers. And we have fallen into being God-belittling people as believers. And we do that when we don't live in humility before Him and humble and grateful obedience to His Son. In a debate about God's existence, the so-called New Atheists often cite dead philosopher Bertrand Russell's famous quip, that if God were to ask him why he did not believe in him, Russell would say, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Yet the same atheists do not seem to be prepared to engage with serious evidence when it is offered to them, says mathematician, scientist, and author John Lennox. He continues and notes that the scientist and author, that scientist and author, Richard Dawkins, seems to have the same attitude in her interview for the New Statesman, where he is quoted, I don't believe in leprechauns, pixies, werewolves, jujus, Thor, Poseidon, Yahweh, Allah, or the Trinity. For the same reason in every case, there is not the tiniest shred of evidence for any of them, and the burden of proof rests with those who wish to believe. Now, do you understand what the meaning of overstatement is? It's exaggeration. It is uh, stating something too strongly. Uh, and that's exactly what I think he's doing here. Now, what constitutes evidence for him, of course, is the key here. And it is the key to everybody, to everyone who disagrees with the claims of Christianity. Um, so you're going to have to do quite a bit of work, being person relative and figuring out how you can communicate with them. But there's a disposition that is here. It is an attitude that is toward God that is not new. The Bible gives it a name, and it's called the fool. Okay? Now, dispositions that every one of us have had, as I've said already, God-belittling people are fools. And... The Scripture says this, for example, Proverbs 26, 4-5, through 5, 
Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So depending on the situation, you deal with them in one way or in another. Psalm 14, 1-3 says this, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now Psalm 2 is a very, very powerful psalm which addresses this issue at a macro level. And it is utterly pertinent to our text this morning. So I want to read the text. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. See, I don't think we realize a lot of times, even as Christians, that our God is a consuming fire. That He is not to be trifled with. And, but for His mercy, we're still breathing. As I've said already, we've all been fools at one time or another, but for God's grace, we have hope. Psalm 8 was read today. What is man, asked the psalmist, that you are mindful of him? The answer to that question can only come after we have come to understand who our Creator is. Because in light of Him, we understand everything else, including who we are as human beings. The horrific reality, however, is that many are going to find out who God is when they die. Never having repented by bending the knee to Jesus, the risen Savior and King. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die makes sense only if God does not exist. But if He does and we don't properly relate to Him in humility and truth through His Son, an unthinkable terror awaits even though the Scriptures reveal it to a degree. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the anthem of my generation growing up and it remains the anthem today for many. But just add this little nugget. Be true to yourself. And we have a sea of humanity that's falling into eternity, rightly condemned by God. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You know what that means? Bertrand Russell has no excuse. Richard Dawkins has no excuse. Not enough evidence, not good enough. That is not a good enough response for the God who gives you life and breath and all that you enjoy. So now that we're coming to Daniel, I've got to recapture the first four chapters since I don't come up every week. In chapters 1 through 4, especially chapters 2 through 3, uh, as I mentioned before, there is the world of power politics that King Nebuchadnezzar is so good at. Chapter 1, we see a conquered people where God sovereignly displaced Israel because of their idolatry, because of them breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Not that there are other gods, but you shall not worship that which is not God. Secondly, chapter 2 reveals to us that there is no God like Daniel's God, where Daniel's God alone is the one who reveals mysteries through a dream. Chapter 3, there is still no God like Daniel's God where the three friends are rescued from the fiery furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar comes to understand that there's no sovereign but Daniel's God in chapter 4. Where instead of humbling himself and glorifying God, he exalts himself and what does God do? He turns him into and judges him. He takes away his kingdom and for seven years... He is completely and perfectly humiliated, living like an animal. Now in chapter 5, what we come to see here is that God is sovereign over your life and my life, whether you are a believer or not. What we come to see here in chapter 5, that King Belshazzar's life is required of him because he never learned the humility Nebuchadnezzar did and thus mocks the Lord God of heaven. What the chapter reveals is that the king's pomp and pride will be finally uh, uh, met by terror and death. And And I want you to get that. His end is terror and death. And if we walk in this king's path, our end will be no different. So, verses 1 through 4, what we see here is Belshazzar's great feast. Let's read. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Before I get into this, I want to give you a little bit of the setting of what's going on historically. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, there were a string of revolts that arose to arrest power in Babylon. Now the throne was finally seized by uh, Nabonidus, who married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters in order to make 
his rule legitimate. Now he, like Nebuchadnezzar, was a devoted worshiper of, of their gods, and, and one of the gods he worshipped was the moon god, Sin. Now, there's a lot of things I can tell you, but I don't want to bore you with the details, but here are some of the nuggets. First of all, this king, for commercial and military advantage, devoted much attention to North Arabia and Edom, where he spent most of his time in Tama, which is a North Arabian capital, and he left Belshazzar in charge of administration in Babylon. So the, the real king was away. Belshazzar is the second king in command. Okay? Now Babylon, one of the things of Babylon was that it was considered to be impregnable. It was known for its fortified walls, there were over a hundred fortified gates and a moat that surrounded the city. Now, feeling so safely, this emboldened the people of Babylon to mock and jeer at the Persians who were surrounding the city. One such thing that is written that they said is, Why do you sit there, Persians? Why don't you go back to your homes? Till mules foul, you will not take our city. And that word means until they mate, you will not um, take the city. The bottom line is this. They were overconfident. Do you know why? Because they have had success for so long. And usually what happens is when you are successful for so long, you think you are invincible. Now the defenders of Babylon may have had the same attitude as its population because Babylon had not been overrun by invaders for over 1,000 years. So they've got reason to be confident. You remember the Lord of the Rings? Number two, Helm's Deep. Remember Helm's Deep where um, the people of Rohan are seeing the that they see uh, the wall being that crumbled down and they realize the orcs are overrunning them. Do you remember that scene? Okay. Well, unlike those of Rohan, the Babylonians had no idea that their walls and their city was being breached. They did not know that Babylon was about to be sacked. And this is all happening during this time during this event, verses 1 through 4. Okay? So during the festivities, an ingenious commander had diverted the waters of the Euphrates to an old channel which was previously dug out by a queen Nitocris, according to Herodotus. So that what happened is this reduced the water level below the river gates and so allowed the Persians to enter the city undetected. We moderns have no idea what this is like. We don't live that way. We don't. We don't live in fortified cities. We live in counties and, and cities where you know, there are no walls, really. And yet we have a false sense of security a lot of times, depending on where we live. But this is, this is an illustration of many of our lives. Things might seem to be going fine, Everything's going smoothly. You got the killer job, the killer wife, the killer kids, the killer house and the killer toys, right? 
And before you know it, boom, you have a heart attack. Before you know it, boom, you just found out you got cancer and you got a week to live. Before you know it, you get a phone call and your child's just been killed in an auto accident. And before you know it, it might be your life that is required of you. Because the fact is this, none of us in here, none of you who are hearing my voice, know when you're going to die. And if you did know, if I knew when I was going to die, how would I live? How would I live? Remember Jesus talked about that He is going to return like a thief in the night in the Gospels? You don't know when he's going to return. Occupy till he comes. People have an idea that, you know, well, you know, I'm young and so I want to have fun and I want to party and I want to, I want to do things my way. But, you know, after I've done everything I want to do and indulge in all of the things I want to indulge in, then when I'm older, I'll, I'll, I'll be ready to give my life to Christ. You ever hear anybody say that? I used to get that a lot. But the fact is, it's like, you know why you got insurance, right? Because you don't know, you know, if you're going to get in an accident or when you're going to get in an accident. You don't know. You don't know. You, there's so much of life you just don't know. And that fact, to presume that you think you have enough time, is not wise. So what was Belshazzar's declaration? He's leading the peoples here to praise the false gods of Babylon. These vessels which had been brought for the purpose of getting toasted were in storage for over 47 years and now the Babylonians are using that which is only to be used in the temple of Yahweh. This is very brazen. So the party's raging, self-indulgence is being expressed, but the line has been crossed. They offered libations to the Babylonian gods with Yahweh's holy utensils. What a libation is, is an alcoholic beverage which is poured out as an offering and sacrifice to the gods. But these utensils did not belong to them. They belonged to Israel's God, whom they thought was supposedly defeated because Israel was taken into captivity. Now if you'll remember in chapter 1, this is God's doing. Because God is the ruler. God is the king. God is the ultimate in all of history, not the kings of the earth. This is a, a main theme in the book of Daniel, and it is a main theme in the whole Bible, that God is king over all. God's absolute authority and power are being mocked. So God responds with a written message. I don't want you to miss the significance here. God has spoken and He will be heard one way or another. God has not left Himself without a witness. This is a special occasion though. God is making a point here. What's the point? 
The gods of the nations are nothing. The gods of the nations are not gods at all. Isaiah 40, 18-20 says this, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Now we think we're so sophisticated with our technologies that we look at that and it's ridiculous. But an idol, an idol, one way of saying what an idol is, is something in creation that has a purpose, but it is not an ultimate thing. Only God is ultimate. But we make that thing in creation an ultimate thing, and we worship it with our time, talent, and treasure. Where we do not recognize that we owe our very existence to God. So this feast is the event responsible for a phrase that's often used in the English language that's contextually lost. What is it? The handwriting on the wall. The handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar's great feast turns into a great terror. The handwriting on the wall is judgment. But the the handwriting on the wall here, it's damnation. It's not just that you're going to die. It's you are going to absorb the wrath of God. Verse 5 through 9. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. Several things I want to talk about here. First of all, the handwriting on the wall. It is clear that it is judgment. It is clear to the king that this is judgment. He doesn't understand what it says, but he knows he crossed the line. Belshazzar's worship of lifeless idols is what is being condemned, and make no mistake about it, as I've already read in Romans 18, Romans 1, 18-20, that the suppression of the truth of God and unrighteousness is the reason why God's wrath has been revealed. It's been revealed. God has made it known. But we want to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So that's the first thing, the handwriting on the wall. Now, the handwriting on the wall 
is a theophany. This is a visible manifestation of God. Recall Exodus 31.18, which says, When He had finished speaking with Him upon Mount Sinai, it's God, He gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Of the Ten Commandments, who wrote the Bible first? It was God. It was God. Oh, that can't happen. Why not? Because those things don't happen. That's not an argument. I mean, think about this. Come on. If the God of Scripture is real, He can do anything He wants, except that which is contrary to His nature. He can't lie. He can't swear by anyone greater than He. But if He wants to stop the earth from moving and sustain it, however all that works, I don't know. Why can't He do it? If He can create out of nothing, but through His spoken word, What's to keep him from doing that? The doctrine of creation, Christian, is, is, is the grounds of the gospel, which reveals what kind of God Scripture describes. And the insanity of it all we see in the garden. That this God who has given us everything we need, our life, everything, we don't trust Him. We listen to a lie. Has God said, can I trust Him? That continues on to today. This refers to the Ten Commandments. Where first on the list is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Clearly, this king is getting hammered with the truth. And make no mistake about it, the truth often is a hammer. It crushes our pride. It undoes us. It even often makes us want to stop living. But if we acknowledge God, even as Job did, or as Paul did, we recognize there's a limit to what we know, but what we do know about Him is He's faithful and true. He's the God of truth. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. Not for Belshazzar. The terror Belshazzar's body demonstrates is really impressive. When I read this, uh, the image that came to me was an image of a, a cartoon character, right? About to be completely and totally destroyed. 
These are the, the Acme um, cartoons that I grew up with. You guys probably have not seen them. But anyway, um, but, but the sad thing is this isn't a cartoon. This is reality. This is real life. And when the text describes his bodily response of hips going slack and hip joints going slack, it means that he lost the strength to stand. He is utterly terrorized. In the Bible, when there is a theophany, when there is a manifestation of God, either through an angelic being or um, a, um, um, a theophany of actually of Christ Himself, people are never lighthearted. They're not giggly. They're terrorized. I mean, read, read in Revelation where John sees a manifestation of an, of an angel, not God, a creature, an angelic being, and he falls on his face to worship. And he goes, get up, man, I'm a servant like you. Don't, don't, don't worship me. There is something that happens when that dimension comes into this dimension. When the spirit world manifests and our physical senses apprehend that it's happening. Every time in the Bible, read. Every single time. It is not fun. It is frightening. Again, we must remember that our God is a consuming fire. When Isaiah chapter 6 has a theophany and he sees God and he hears holy, holy, holy is the Lord Lord Yahweh is the God of the covenant God creator almighty heaven and earth are filled with his glory What happened to Isaiah? I'm undone. This is a prophet of God. This is a righteous man. He says, I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Oh boy, what's that talking about? We are sinful. That's really what he's saying. Unclean lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. Our words reveal what's going on in our soul. Isaiah, before the Holy One, saw how utterly undone he was. And yet God mercifully took a a coal, cleansed him. Anyway, the point being, Belshazzar's terror is warranted. Because he is coming in contact with the God that he has just mocked. Ever been so scared that you start shaking? Or your legs start shaking? Two two times that I've experienced that in my life. One, when I've worked out really hard and my whole body, I've just pushed it to the limit and and my body's shaking. Another time is when I'm either climbing uh, the wall of a mountain 
and there's so much exposure that I get freaked out. My leg just starts shaking without me having no control over it. Um, or, you know, being way too up on a ladder, and it's just like, oh man, I do not feel safe here, right? There is a fear factor going on with the second one. Well, uh, when Belshazzar experiences this, uh, the queen gets involved and uh, really um, explains in verses 10 through, through 12, the sa- or verses uh, 10 through 13, um, the theme in the book of Daniel up to this point is that Daniel is unlike the conjurers and diviners. Um, he is an extraordinary man with extraordinary gifting, wisdom, and insight. And really, it points out Daniel's prophetic ministry. And I don't want to read that right now, but I do want to go to Belshazzar's terror, which is going to be explained. Verses 13 through 24. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? By the way, that word father is used in many different ways here. Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. It wasn't his actual father who you know, is responsible for him being born. Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the nations, nations and men of every language, feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that He sets over it whomever He wishes. Yet you, His Son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of His house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath and all your ways you have not glorified. 
Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. First of all, Daniel's been here before. Yeah? Sure he has. In chapter 4, he's before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, explaining his dream and its interpretation. And now he's before Belshazzar. But first, he wants to make several points clear before he even interprets the inscription. Before he even gives the meaning of that inscription. First of all, I don't want your treasure. But I will nevertheless serve you. Daniel couldn't be bought. No man of God or woman of God should ever be bought. If you are able to be bought, you will be unfaithful to the Word of God. Careful. Number two, Daniel explains what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel explains that the reason Nebuchadnezzar was so great was due to God. The reason Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated was due to God. The reason Nebuchadnezzar was restored was due to God. And the reason he was converted was due to God. Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was converted. He repented. Pointing out that God and God alone is the sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth. Third, Daniel confronts Belshazzar's pride. Reminding the king that while he knew of his father's, or more like his grandfather's, exaltation, humiliation, and restoration, he chose instead to follow the gods of Babylon that can't see, hear, nor understand. And the God whose hand gives you life and breath and power, you have not glorified but mocked, and that hand is now against you. That hand has written out your judgment. He sets things straight. And now here comes the death blow. Daniel explains the writing on the wall. Verse 25. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many tekel uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel. You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peresh. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. The word many has to do with counting out, measuring. This meant that Belshazzar's reign had come to its termination. Ecclesiastes, what does Solomon say? There's a time for everything under heaven. His time came. Your reign's done. Tekel, Wade, that is God found him deficient on the scales. God rejected him. Perez, meaning to divide, signified that the Babylonian Empire had separated from him and was given now to the Medes and Persians, besieging the city while he's getting this handwriting on the wall. Now, all these participles, these are participles. They're all passive. 
They're in the passive voice. What that means is, what's happening is being done to him. What's happening, he has no control to stop. What's happening, he has no say in. And when the day of judgment does come, when our final breath does come, there will be no more time for repentance if we've not repented. There will be no more time to set things right. book of Hebrews says that it is appointed unto men once to die. Then comes the judgment. You only have one life to live. And the way you and I live our lives now will determine where we will continuously live on in eternity. Either as God's friend in utter joy like we've never experienced before, like nothing on this side of the kingdom of heaven, we will will be blown away. The joy and the, 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 the grandeur of that joy, there's an opposite to it. There's a horror that will be experienced by those who don't bend the knee to Jesus. And that horror is an eternal one. And what makes hell hell is not the devil or his angels. What makes hell hell is that you're absorbing God's wrath you. God's wrath is there. If God is what the Bible says that He's everywhere, wherever hell is, okay, that's something to talk about, right? Wherever it is, God's there. So the same thing that's going to make heaven glorious is the same thing that's going to make hell utterly horrific. It's God's presence. God's presence in heaven, favor, friend, family. God's presence in hell, enemy, scoffer. God's judgment is swift. God's judgment is sure. And our lives are short and they're vaporous. The psalmist says this, and I think we must heed its wisdom. Psalm 90, verses 1 through 2, and then 10 through 12. Verses 1 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days 
that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You don't think the psalmist knew about Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and even the kings of Israel? Some good, most horrible. How God was not properly feared. God was not properly approached. The key ingredient, our pride. Our sin. Finally, Belshazzar is replaced by Darius the Mede. Verses 13 through 14. No, wait. No, it's not verse 13. Don't worry about it. Start in verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders... And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age of 62. First of all, Daniel is honored here. As in previous chapters, Daniel's faithfulness is rewarded. He is the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, Belshazzar was the second. His father Nabonidus was the first. But even more importantly, Darius is exalted. See, the climax of this story is not Daniel being honored. The climax of the story is God's word being fulfilled. Is God's word being fulfilled in our lives? Is there evidence that it is? We're just going through the motions. Get up, go to work, go work out if you work out. Uh, it's time to eat, it's time for breakfast. Oh, it's Super Bowl. Uh, oh, got to go to the game, got to take kids to, to, to sports. Uh, oh, it's time to go uh, grocery shopping. Um, oh, great. Oh, well, let's get a new TV. Blah, blah, blah. Where is God in all of this? I'm not saying that He's not there. But is He there? My question to us is, are we conscious that, he, that we owe our very existence to Him? And I, if you're like me, a lot of times I'm not. I don't even think about that. But, we, but it's true. We do owe our very existence to God. The fact that the fact that the job that I was supposed to get when I thought I was going to get it, it didn't happen. Am I still going to trust God? If you're breathing and you're walking, the only reason you can is because God is giving that gift to you. So if He's giving that gift to you, which is more precious than any job, He'll open up the door at the proper time. You can count on it. You don't have to despair. Daniel's prophecy comes to pass, and God does what the psalmist writes, speaking of rulers. I think it's in Psalm... I'm not even getting 80 or something, I don't know. Is that, speaking of rulers, he brings one down and he exalts another. 
And again, like I said last time I preached, I'm going to say it again. There's an election coming up. Vote. Get involved. Your decision matters. It's just not ultimate. It's not ultimate. So, the perils of pride and achievement can't be overstated. We see the pride in Eden that eventually led to our first parents' alienation from God because they did not trust His Word. And what was ushered in was death. But Jesus Christ remedied that by conquering death through His death and resurrection in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. Now He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's the King of glory without beginning or end. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of His power, and He alone is Savior. So to reject His offer of salvation, which is what the Christian message does, is crazy. But people are doing it daily. We were once dead. Ephesians 2 says, in trespasses and sins, just like everybody else. But what happened? God moved. He had mercy on us. May what you're hearing today move you to pray for those that you know don't know Him. Through Belshazzar's brazen idolatry and God-belittling attitude, God's judgment was met out. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, it seems that Belshazzar died unconverted, lost with the terror of final judgment awaiting him. Now, the Most High God ultimately rules alone, even if He installs rulers to rule. I think we need to remember that. Sometimes it's hard to swallow. The Most High God ultimately rules. Sooner or later, all the rulers of the earth will bow down to Him, either as His friend or as His enemy. Now, the anthem, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, that my generation thought was so cool. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Oh, and be true to yourself. It's a horrible way to live in light of the God who is there. See, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And I want to read... Section out of this commentary to put things in perspective. Both chapter 4 and chapter 5 tell of a portent and a personal calamity. But one is a story with a happy ending, the other ends unhappily. One is comedy, the other tragedy. One reveals the divine mercy, the other the divine judgment. Even in the heathen world, even in the heathen world can be perceived God's election of some to a positive place in His purpose, of others to a negative one. In everyday events and in political affairs, some find life, others find death. Human responsibility is real, and every experience tests, and every experience tests by eliciting a response that either draws people toward God and His blessing, or draws in the opposite direction. Behind the whole is the purpose of God, whose wisdom and sovereign acts are deep and mysterious, but ultimately trustworthy. 
Psalm 2 talks about God laughing when nations and governments assert themselves against Him and His purpose. He knows they always end up falling into the pit they dug. Hearing God's laughter is important for the Belshazzars of the world. It is a way God may get through to them. It is important for their subjects who can afford to sit lighter to them than they sometimes realize and may be able to stand up to them better when they do realize it. Who hearing my voice today can say, I have bent the knee to Jesus. Those of you who aren't sure about this great God and Savior and you got doubts, you need to deal with those doubts before it is too late. God really is sovereign over my life and your life, even over people like Richard Dawkins who claim not to believe that He exists and mocks the Holy One. But today is the day of salvation. And while it is called today, cry out to God for mercy. Because when judgment comes, listen, when judgment comes, there is no more mercy to be had. So Father, we thank You for this account of a king who like so many of us at one time or another or even still now mocked or mock you. But you will not be mocked. In fact, you will scoff at mockers and scoffers. You will have the last word because you are creator and we are creature. But oh God, I pray that the word that was heard today would be word that landed on good soil and produces 30, 60, and 100 fold for the kingdom of heaven. So Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to live in light of eternity. And by Your Spirit we will. And we Ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son, who died for our sins, rose for our justification, and is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. Amen.